Hello and welcome to the Thriving Abroad podcast and the last episode in the Thriving Abroad Together 21 episode series. I'm Louise Wells, your host for these conversations, an expat and transition coach and author of Thriving Abroad, the definitive guide to professional and personal relocation success. Now, the previous episode, episode 20, was part one of my best bits from the Thriving Abroad Together series, where I reviewed nine of the interviews. And this is part two, where I review the final ten. And I want to say a really big thank you to all the participants of these ten interviews. I so appreciate your willingness to share your stories and to provide your tips, advice and strategies with us. Now, when I set out on creating this series of interviews, my aim was to provide conversations to support listeners through the current challenges associated with the coronavirus pandemic. And what struck me as I've listened back to the episodes and reviewed the show notes was that this is such an amazing account of people from all over the world's reaction to this quite extraordinary situation. But also, while their tips and advice were centred on the current pandemic, so much of what we discussed would be helpful in managing other challenging situations, particularly in relation to working through change and transition. Therefore, I really feel the content has relevance and utility into the future and beyond this current crisis. And so I've decided to keep the series live on a special page devoted to the series on my website, thrivingabroad.com. And also in recognition that some people like me may prefer to read rather than listen or read and listen together. And so I've created four playbooks structured around the following themes, strategies for positive parenting in challenging times, strategies for coping well in times of uncertainty, strategies for vibrant well-being in challenging times, and strategies for effective management of our professional worlds in challenging times. And in this episode, I reviewed the last two streams. To listen to the review of the first two, go to episode 20. Now, each of these playbooks contains the show notes for each episode, including key messages from the conversations, useful resources and questions to help you apply the content to your personal situation. You can access these by going to thrivingabroad.com and registering for the newsletter. I'll send you a link to the download for the playbooks and also a fortnightly podcast newsletter so that you and I can keep in touch. So let's get into the best bits for this episode. Now, the first four episodes I review relate to strategies for vibrant well-being. Now, currently around the world, there's been a lot of conversation about mental and physical well-being. We're facing a period of massive change and transition from dealing with the continuing impact of pandemic and its related health and economic implications to the deep social questions raised by issues such as the Black Lives Matter movement. Add to that the uncertainty in relation to international mobility as expats, and there is no doubt we all have significant challenges and obstacles to cope with, and this can have an impact on our well-being. The good news, though, is that there are definitely things that we can do and can incorporate into our lives to boost our well-being. And the conversations highlighted here provide tips and strategies for doing just that. So first up is my conversation with Jodie Harris on mindfulness. 
Now at times over the past few months, my brain has felt full, very full of information, of concerns, of worry. And I know that this has impacted on my ability to sleep well and also on my ability to be effective during the day. And I've really felt at times that I need to find a way to switch off, to unplug. And I mean more than unplug from my devices. And I've tried distraction techniques, I've watched films, I've read a book. But the one technique that seemed to work the most effectively for me was my dog walks. My dog's walks, which tend to be just peacefully, just me, out in nature where I'd focus on the surroundings, the sounds, the birds, and come back calmer and more centred. And it turns out that I was walking mindfully, not all the time, but enough to tame those thoughts. So listen as Joji explains what mindfulness is. So the most basic definition of mindfulness that I use is paying attention to what's happening as it's happening non-judgmentally right um and i always like to give the caveat of non-judgmental does not mean that you never have judgments um sometimes people think of mindfulness as like oh everything is perfect and (laughs) oh look at all the blessings in this difficult time (laughs) um but mindfulness is not about pretending that things are all good or trying to force yourself to only look at the bright side of things. Mm. When we say non-judgmentally, what we're saying is by allowing ourselves to see that there's what's happening, and Mm -hmm. then there's what we're telling ourselves about what's happening. Mm. Mm -hmm. And by practicing withholding judgment, or even just seeing the judgments that you're having, what you do is you create a little bit of distance so that you can Mm -hmm. see what's there in the moment. We can remember that we actually all have the capacity for mindfulness. We actually all practice it in some small ways, whether we know we're doing it or not. Mm -hmm. And it evens the playing field a little bit for people to say, okay, what does it look like for me from where I am to pay attention to what's happening as it's happening and to pull myself a little bit out of the story that I'm telling myself. Mm-hmm. So I'd always seen mindfulness as another to-do to add to my already very long list of to-dos. And I love Jodie's gentle approach, one where you can make it your own. As she says, you shouldn't cause yourself pain or suffer from mindfulness. So my first aha for this episode is that we can work to integrate mindfulness into our lives in the way that works best for us. And if we do that initially and we see the benefits, then we can go on to build our own practice. There are no shoulds, no have-tos, just a general focus on our thoughts in the here and now. Phew. So on to the next episode, and episode 15 with Ryan Thomas. Now, one of the issues raised in the media in the UK during lockdown and probably a bit around the world as well, has been the growing lockdown waistlines. And I have to admit to struggling just a little bit with this one myself. Now, on the one hand, it does seem wrong to be talking about issues of vanity at times like these. And yet it isn't just about vanity because we all know the connection between weight gain, over being overweight and obese, and the serious health outcome, outcomes associated with coronavirus. 
Now, in this episode with Ryan, I talked about nutrition and fitness and what we should be prioritising and thinking about. And when it comes to nutrition, it turns out it all comes down to habits. Yes, I know. Who'd have thought? But it did make me think of my newly acquired lockdown habits. Chocolate chip cookies, homemade by my stick-thin daughter who can eat as many as she likes, life's just not fair, and crisp white wine of a sunny evening. Oh dear. Listen as Ryan explains about habits. I think I think for me, as as you know, Louise, it's it's all about habits, and I think that lots of the best research on what we eat and why we eat it and how we feel when we're eating comes back to the habits that we have in our life, and mm. I, I think especially at this, this stressful time, and habit habits kind of work like a domino effect. Once you know, if you start the day with a bad breakfast. There's, we know there's a there's a high chance you're going to follow that by a bad lunch and you know um, a not so great dinner either. So uh, I think if if anything, if anything, it sounds it might sound quite counterintuitive, but I think stepping back and trying to look at your nutrition habits head on at this time. So I think relating back to your first question, just coming back to if if I if I am feeling stressed and I found myself going to alcohol or I found myself going to sweet treats that you know I don't want it's not making me feel great long term then then facing that habit head on and trying to replace that um, reward at the end of the habit so habits tend to work in a cue routine reward so the cue is I'm on the sofa, I've just seen the news, I feel really stressed. The routine is I go to the cupboard and the reward is I feel better because my daughter made a cupcake and now I feel better. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I, I think um, if, if anything, the, the first thing to pay attention to is what are your habits like around food at the moment? Now, Ryan also mentioned and reminded us about the relationship between a healthy, balanced diet and our immune system, which really is another reason for getting things under control and thinking about the colours on our plate and eating plenty of protein. Then we talked about fitness. Now, this is something that I have been pretty good at continuing during lockdown, in part thanks to Ryan and his horrible online Zoom hit sessions. Anyone heard of a snowball? Truly horrible. But overall, though, I have to be honest and say these and some weight-based sessions and my mindful dog walks have played a massive part in helping my overall mental and physical well-being. So listen to the podcast to find out Ryan's recipe for physical well-being. First of all, just trying to get outside every day. Um, you know, for if, you, if in your country you're still allowed to to take a walk or take a run, go on the bike. So I think in terms of any kind of exercise plan and what that might look like right now, it is definitely getting outside. You know, the benefits of getting outside are huge, vitamin D and all of that. Um, so I think getting outside every day is great. Um, and then uh, what I like to do and what I want to what I want to see uh, most of our clients doing is sort of alternating some strength training with um, some sort of uh, higher intensity training so something that's uh, 
you're going to focus on sort of building and maintaining muscle mass and then alternating that with something that's a little bit higher intensity and is more focused on just getting a really good kind of cardiovascular workout and uh, raising your heart rate. So Kelly McGonigal, in her book, The Joy of Movement, talks about how our whole physiology is engineered to reward us for moving. Apparently, when we move in a continuous way, so it could be walking, running, lifting weights, swimming, our muscles release chemicals that reduce inflammation through our bodies and lowers our risk of contracting diseases. And these chemicals also have a big impact on our brain, increasing neuroplasticity, boosting our moods and improving our brain's capacity to deal with stress and difficult emotions. Scientists have called the hormones that muscles secrete into our bloodstream and make our brains more resilient to stress and depression hope molecules. I guess we could all use some of those right now. So my aha number two is really quite simple and one that we hear over and over again, but you know, once again has been proven to be really important. Nutrition and physical fitness and movement will positively impact our physical and mental well-being enormously. We all know this, but how much do we all do it? So the next step in creating a well-being practice is to make time for reflection. So mindfulness is one way in which we can do that. Um, But there is another way and quite a powerful way, and that is through writing. I spoke to Joe Parfit about the power of writing and our conversation reminded me of the value of writing not simply as a means of communication but also as a way to develop my understanding of my experiences, thoughts and emotions. As Cecil Day-Lewis says, we write not to be understood but to understand. Listen as Joe explains why writing about thoughts and feelings and sharing that writing can be so beneficial. Often you don't really know what you think and it's only when you put your pen on the page and start writing that you manage to make sense of all the thoughts that go round and round your head. And I know that there are things that keep me awake in the middle of the night and there are many counsellors and gurus and and spiritual people who will say, if you wake up in the middle of the night with stuff going round your head, get a pen, write it down. Mm. Well, there's a lot of sense in that because it really does go from the tangle of, of emotions in your head to the page if you write things down. But as I've just said, along the way, in, you, write your, you write your way into understanding. And I think that is incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, it also really helps you to heal. Now, I am not a psychotherapist, so I can't, I can't claim any qualifications there. But what I do know is that There was a study done in 2012 by Brigham York University in the States, and they proved that if you share negative emotions, it lessens them. It lessens the impact of that emotion if you share. And they worked out that whether you shared those emotions with the page or with somebody else, it didn't make any difference. You could, it was still really helpful to put it on the page. Now, what they proved was that if you shared with somebody else, that helps you even more. But you could, sh- if you shared it by writing it down for yourself, that was helpful. Share it by writing it down and then somebody else reading that, 
that is even more helpful. Read it out loud to a group of people who listen, they don't even have to comment. And that is even Mm -hmm. more helpful. And then, so that will lessen the negative emotions. But at the same time, if you write about something positive, sharing it with the page makes it more positive. Sharing it with another person makes it even more positive and sharing it with a group of people verbally makes it even more positive. So the Mm -hmm. impact of being able to do that is really quite something. So definite aha for me is the reminder to write regularly. We can journal, um, journal in the morning, morning pages is something that's very popular. Or take a look at Jo's podcast series and go and look at her website where she offers all kinds of writing workshops, which provide an opportunity to reflect and learn from the highs and lows of our life experiences. Now, one of the positives that has come from the pandemic in the UK, and I suspect around the world, has been the way in which communities and companies have collaborated to create new ways of supporting each other. So while physical distancing is causing isolation for many, there is also a growing recognition of the power of connection and collaboration. In episode 17, I spoke to the three founders of a new global mobility support initiative, called Generation Mobility, Alicia, Oella and Cathra. Listen as Alicia describes their vision for the growth of their business as a support community built on collaboration. Absolutely. So um, Generation Mobility um, as a company is we're developing, if you can think about it, a, a digital companion. This companion, instead of you traveling alone, you will have this companion that will begin to understand the movement of people and help you map out your journey abroad emotionally. Check in with you, connect you to resources and people that, can, that have been there before that will help you uh, adjust and thrive personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. We have a, a community of what we call Thrive Abroad Experts, and those are mental health professionals from around the world. Right now, and you can reach them, we're so segmented. If you go to different countries, you can go expat counseling and this and that, and we're so segmented. But our goal is to draw these people into one com- community, a community built by us, for us. So this is the story of three ladies who came to international mobility from very different origins and experiences, but recognised that they had shared experience and reactions to the experience of international relocation and decided to collaborate together. You can listen to their full stories on the podcast episode, but listen here as well as shares how after participating in a very intensive Silicon Valley Accelerator programme, they came to decide that collaboration and generation mobility was the way forward. We had a very good talk together and we said, oh my God, uh, we love, we really, our heart is for collaboration and partner and to partner and good efforts. And we said, we are stronger together. We build, we build, we want a community. We want a world uh, with better potential for people transitioning abroad. And from there was the birthday of generation So my aha for this episode, episode 17, is to look for ways to collaborate, to identify, define and bring to reality the changes we want to see. We're all in this together and are so much more impactful collectively. I see this as important at local community levels, right up to international and global levels. 
So now, onto the strategies for effective management of our professional worlds. You know, our professional worlds have been changed and challenged beyond recognition as a result of the pandemic. Travel restrictions mean that normally mobile lives and careers have been curtailed, and we've all learned to work from home and from our computers. Now, I've long worked online, and so for me, this has been nothing new. But for many, it's been their first foray into the joys of online leadership and meetings. And for some, sadly, the economic fallout has led to job loss, and for business owners, some very difficult decisions about whether they can continue, and if they can, how. In the first of these interviews, I'm reviewing my conversation with the amazing Amel Diraghi of Tandem Nomads. Amel supports expat partners and global nomads to build portable businesses. And in our conversation, Amel talked about the importance of not freezing in the face of adversity and uncertainty. Listen as she suggests the three things you need to think about in order to pivot your business in challenging times. And then in terms of marketing, I... I would say there's three ways to look at this. This mm-hmm. is a time to show up, like I say, and if you try to pretend like nothing is happening, then there's a problem. So <laughs> being at the forefront of this, but also being transparent with your business, it's important. But then in terms of marketing strategies, there's three things you can ask yourself. The general question is, what do you need to pivot in your business? And there's three things you can pivot. Number one is your language, is how are you showing up? You don't need to change everything about business, but your language. For that example, I will share, for example, I have an online course to help people you know, start a portable business. There's a way that I promoted it until now that was more about you know, the freedom of traveling, et cetera. Now yeah. I'm just changing the language of the necessity to work from home. Right. So that's a Mm -hmm. typical example of ask yourself what what language can you change a little bit to sell the same product or business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second way to look at it is then maybe you can pivot your products or your services. Is there a product that you have that you can tweak a little bit or maybe reinvent or that or put on a new one that makes better sense during these times? Mm -hmm. Third one is pivoting your whole business. And mm-hmm. that's also an opportunity for a lot of people who maybe are, were struggling and it's the time for them to pivot their business. And-, mm-hmm. and I think we've seen many businesses pivoting um, to meet the new demand patterns in this current situation. Now, my aha from this episode and from episode six with Amel Diraghi was that she talked about her experience of past crises as a child in Algeria and Serbia and how it's inspired her to think about creating a warrior mindset to look for the opportunities in times of adversity. And then Mel ended by talking about the opportunity this pandemic now gives us to create. Listen as she explains. There is an opportunity of creation, of recruitment recreating ourselves as well mm. in moments of, of crisis. I'm looking at the art scene. Honestly, I, because I lived in develop, developing worlds and developed world, the art scene was so boring for me in the developing world. So boring because it was like so flat and meaningless. When you go to the developing world that struggle, the art is so powerful because mm. they are in crisis. So in times of crisis, remind yourself, even if you're in business, it's time of creation. It's time you don't mm. have to create when you have to run a business or you have demand all the time. When you're not in demand, that's your time to go deep in and create. So 
So my hard number five, in times of crisis, remind yourself it is a time of creation. Go deep and create. Now, let's pivot to think about careers and the challenges people may be facing as jobs come under threat. In episode two of this series, I spoke to Sandra Bichel from Career Angels. This was a highly practical conversation where Sandra shared many strategies for people who are facing employment challenges. One aspect of the conversation that hit home for me was her description of the three ways in which people react to the job challenge. Listen as she explains. We see very different types of reactions. One is this, what's going on, which leads to halting every kind of activity and full paralysis mode, which, especially if somebody does not have a job, is the worst possible thing they could be doing. Then, as with every crisis, there are people who react. Well, that's it. They simply react. There is no thinking behind no logic behind the reacting that I might lose my job. I send out 20 CVs. I apply to everything I can find. And they have this feeling then also this misleading feeling of productivity Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. is actually very counter counterproductive busyness because it very often burns bridges. They make mistakes they usually would not be making. So this is the other, just going into reaction mode without Mm -hmm. really having a plan, a strategy, how do I position myself, et cetera. And then there are people, and we also see that, that say, this is now a fantastic opportunity. I'll get ready. I'll do my research. I prepare. This is my strategy. This is my added value on the job market. And they have a plan and follow that plan. And, you know, I think it is so important to be honest about how we are reacting in any situation, because obviously that reaction then informs our strategy and approach. And I think this was a common theme between both Amel and Sandra's conversations. Now, maintaining self-confidence is often a challenge in job search, but I also think it's also a challenge in overcoming many challenges, from fitness and nutrition that we discussed with Ryan earlier, to managing a business in challenging times. Listen as Sandra explains a strategy related to job search. You asked about um, personal confidence, how to maintain personal confidence. Mm -hmm. And that will be very important in the coming weeks and months. So one other thing uh, that can be applied here is look at the facts. So whenever somebody, whenever any one of you gets into a job search mode, because they want to or have to, make sure to track the data. In a sense, track how many jobs you've applied to, track how many companies you have contacted directly, track how many recruiters you have contacted, make sure you have sent up follow-up follow-up emails everywhere, and then simply go back and track how many HR people have replied, how many recruiters have replied, how many thank you emails have I received, how many interviews, and then um, calculate response rate, interview rate, and anything, because those numbers will show you whether you're on the right track or not, whether it's okay to worry or there is no need to worry. So again, you can turn something emotional into something rather data-driven and see, is it time to worry? Yes or no. And if the KPIs are bad, it means you're doing something wrong and you really need course correction. So my aha number six is to think about how we are objectively reviewing our progress in relation to overcoming challenge. 
keep an eye on the KPIs, and instead of losing confidence when things don't work out as we hope, course correct in response to the data we collect. So in the next episode, episode 16, I spoke to Gertrude Eriger, an executive coach who works with women leaders. We recognise the challenge all leaders are facing at the moment as they work to manage their professional and personal lives remotely, whilst motivating teams who are often scattered all over the world with their own personal and professional challenges. We talked about how leaders can work to align their business priorities with those that nurture connections, relationships and well-being. Gertrude emphasised the importance of managing our energy stores. Listen as she explains more. So one exercise is that you draw two energy tanks and that you see your resilience, your energy level as you have two energy tanks. One, the first one is like the one you're always working on. It means you refuel your your energy level with, with things that energize you. Sometimes it's only one thing that you get back to your schedule. It doesn't have to be a, like a rainbow of activities, but a lot of times it's really starting with one thing that energizes you. One thing that you know, if you do that on a regular base, then you're, you're set up also to, to work longer or also to go through very stressful situations. And then we talk about a secret second energy tank and the secret en- second energy tank, this is really your, your storage. So a lot of times what I see right now or when I checked in is that some woman I was talking to, they said, wow, my first tank is almost like, depleted already because the last weeks were so stressful. So I'm already living on the second one. And the second one is your storage. So my challenge was, for them to say, okay, check in every Monday morning, where are you? Are you still depleting your first one? And you're like already only using 70% of your second energy tank? Or do you bring one activity back to your schedule that will refill the second one and even refill the first one? So you're, you're balancing your energy tanks, but it's very important to, to bring one activity back to your schedule and really, really commit to that. And relationships are also key in everything we do, be it personal or professional related activities. And Gertrude urged us all to think about the state of our relationships. Listen as she explains. And this is your ecosystem because no one is in this alone and no one, no one can fight through this alone. So it's very important that you that you assess those relationships and that you see leaks or where you see, okay, this relationship, it wasn't, for example, when you had trust issues before with your team or you had, you had um, the feeling that some of your team members are not as engaged um, or you didn't have a very strong report to your boss before. Now, as I said, it's a crash test. So now it's just a matter of time until those, those, leaks or, or um, the missing trust will, will come up. So it is now important that you as a leader, you take the initiative and, and take small steps to restore relationships that are so important to you right now. 
Now, although Gertrude was talking about a business setting, I think both these pieces of advice apply well to all aspects of our lives. So my aha number seven is, think carefully about our energy stores and what we can do to refill them. And then also think about the most important relationships in our lives. Where are the cracks and what can we do to fill them? So moving swiftly on, we've all taken the crash course in running our lives online. I don't know about you, but I've initiated so many people to Zoom. I think I should have been working on a commission. Now I know for many expats, this way of working and communicating is not new. But as I introduce this next conversation with Dr Penny Pullen in episode four, where we talk about virtual leadership, the one thing that struck me was the connection between what Gertrude was also talking about in terms of the need to focus on relationships. And that is so true when leading virtually. Those relationship cracks that Gertrude mentioned can jump out and bite in virtual environments. And so it's really important that we do nurture our online relationships. And Penny talks a lot about how that can be achieved in this episode. But my biggest aha from this conversation relates to something that many leaders have been discussing through this pandemic. When leaders can't physically connect and see their teams and be in the same environment with them, how can they know that they're actually doing the work? Here's Penny's answer. (laughs) The biggest one that leaders always come to me with is saying, Penny, I can't see what they're doing. I have no idea what they're doing. I have no idea if they're doing any work or not. How on earth can I work virtually? I need to be able to look around and see what people are up to. At which point, I I need to say to people, the thing is, you see, the trouble is that you're measuring on what people are putting in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The time that they're sitting at their desk as opposed to the outputs. For virtual working to work effectively and for the leaders not to be thinking the whole time, oh, is someone at their desk or are they being distracted or are they doing something else and I don't know. Move away from that and measure on outputs. And I think that's something that I'm sure is true, not just for virtual working, but also for, for people working are working without working virtually because what matters? Is it the time somebody sits at their desk or is it the outputs that they produce? And I'm sure that's a shift that is, is happening, you know, across the board. But for virtual working, it makes so much more sense. And if you measure on outputs and it doesn't matter what's happening at any particular moment, so you as a leader of a group or a team working on a virtual project, you don't need to fret about what people are doing at any one moment because what matters is what the outputs are. And so my aha number seven is that as leaders we should focus on not what our teams are doing day to day but on the outputs they're actually creating and I think that's probably quite a good message for us all generally to focus on the outputs that we're all creating as well and what we're doing day to day. So we're now down to the last two conversations in this review and we turn our attention to the challenges faced by dual career couples. Now we all know that the pandemic has created some challenging situations for expats with families, partners split across borders, 
some repatriating home early, or perhaps questioning their longer-term aspirations in terms of international mobility. For dual-career couples, the need to move quickly or make new and different decisions can be particularly challenging, and these two final conversations provide helpful advice and insights for partners finding themselves in these situations. So the first review is of the conversation with Jennifer Petriglieri in episode 7. Now Jennifer has just recently published a book called How Couples Work, based on her research into how dual career couples make their careers work over their lifetimes. What she found was that life can be challenging for dual career couples, but not all of the time, and that challenging times tend to coalesce around three particular transitions. Now you can listen to the conversation to discover what those three transitions were and what they mean for couples. But one aspect of our conversation really struck me, and that was when Jennifer talked about the pitfalls international dual career couples can fall into when being presented with an opportunity and the need for a quick relocation decision. Listen as she explains. The international moves often just suddenly happen, right? They land on Mm. our plate. You know, we get the knock on the office door. There's this great opportunity. It's in Dubai. Please move next week. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's like, whoa. Um, And and I think that creates a real trap for partners, which is, and, and there's a few of them. I mean, one is we need to make a decision very quickly. And so we can use the wrong decision criteria. Let me give you some mm-hmm. examples. We base the decision on money, particularly some of the expat destinations. Oh, they're tax-free. Oh, this is going to be great for the family <laughs> because we're going to earn a lot of money and then think what we can buy with, you know, and I don't mean materially buy, but, you know, the, the options we can buy with this money. Mm-hmm. It might be a short-term decision. It might, it might be short-term decision criteria. You know, this looks like a great promotion for me and for you. And right now, my career is a little bit stagnant, so it makes sense. The problem with these decision criteria is, um, I mean, let's take money. First of all, we all need money. Money's a good thing. But most of us, or in fact, none of us work for money alone. We work for, you know, it's like, why do you do your job versus another job? We do our jobs for the community, for developmental opportunities, because we have a passion for a topic, etc. And what happens when we choose our money is it's such a false decision criteria. First of all, because money can very quickly go away. In today's uncertain world, particularly at the moment, you know, jobs are very uncertain. We may move for a job with more money, but then someone may be made redundant. Something may happen. It's very hard to predict our earning potential over time. Very, very hard. And so to cut someone else's career off for money just does not make actual financial sense. Never mind the sense around the meaning, the community, all the other reasons we're doing a career. The other problem is, is when we're deciding very quickly and the choice is in front of us, um, it's about binary choice do we take it or not rather than a more mindful plan choice where we sit down and say okay we're interested in an international career what might that look like what are the boundaries what opportunities are in or out if we get offered the middle east that's in but if it's asia it's out for example and if we don't have those decision criteria in place already it's really hard to make a decision when it's presented in front of us Mm. And so I think when we think about what can couples do who know this might be on the horizon or know they want this, it's really important they have those conversations 
before an opportunity arises. When the opportunity arises, it, I, mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's too late, but it's very hard to work through all of this stuff, as you said, if you've got two days to get back to your boss. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you just haven't got time to unpack all these issues. So conversations are key. And as expats, we all know how those sometimes can go. And Jennifer shared some great tips about making these conversations work in the way that both partners' professional aspirations are heard. And I really recommend you go and have a listen. There's some great strategies and advice there. So my aha from episode eight was to take time to think about what you really want as a couple to really listen to each other's professional aspirations and make a joint decision and then keep that conversation alive and very much a part of your ongoing relationship. Now, my final conversation for this review was with Paul and Jani from Here We Are Global. This conversation was also on the subject of dual career couples and how they can make international assignments work for both partners. In this first excerpt, Paul introduces the main challenge companies face when seeking to fill international positions. It, to, to speak to, to your question about what, what is the biggest challenge for organization, well, nowadays, uh, for those organizations who want to move people around or want to recruit people from, from other countries, uh, by now um, the, the, the career of the spouse is by far the most important reasons for people not to be mobile. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. the main challenge organizations have to move talent around internationally to deal yeah. with that, that, that issue. So attracting dual career couples is a challenge that many companies face. And in the last decade, many have looked for ways to support partners professionally and so encourage couples to embark on international moves. But how effective is this support? Is there more that can be done to support the dual career couple? Jani believes so. From my view, I think that many organizations still hold a little uh, old school view on international assignments, meaning that there's a lot of focus on attracting employees, making sure they will become mobile and helping the spouse and seeing the spouse as someone who needs help uh, as a kind of an appendix uh, who needs special support. And with that comes a very uh, short term focus on ensuring that the assignment is not failing. We all know that the cost of failed assignments is very huge. Uh, that's, that's a certain fact. Uh, but what we see missing is uh, a more long-term perspective on actually um, designing global career paths for the employee and, and also acknowledging that uh, modern-day couples uh, mm-hmm. work together and, and both have dreams and aspirations for their career and their life. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the coaching and outplacement ser- services that are offered has the same focus on making sure that the spouse is occupied for the time of the assignment. Uh, and this is really where we want to, to challenge and bring in some new perspectives um, to think more long term, to think in more uh, meaningful, holistic uh, perspectives on, on global careers. I so agree with this. And so my aha number 10 from this conversation is that in order to support international talent, there needs to be a way of supporting dual career couples in a way that recognises that they work together and both have dreams and aspirations for their careers and longer term lives. 
I think this podcast links so nicely to the content from Jennifer's conversation and couples would benefit from listening to both and applying Jennifer's ideas and strategies to the question of international mobility in their future and take into account both partners' professional longer-term visions and aspirations. So there we are. We've reached the end of the Thriving Abroad Together series and the end of this Best Bits podcast. Thank you once again to everyone who has participated and contributed to the series. I really, really appreciate your time and your contributions. Now remember you can find all these conversations in the Thriving Abroad Together series hosted on the Thriving Abroad website. You can also sign up for the playbooks and the regular podcast newsletter where I will keep you up to date with all the new and upcoming conversations. Remember also to subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast host, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And please do take time to rate and review the show. That would really help me in getting the word out about the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing me, louise at louisewiles.com. Now also, if you would like to help me support the Mantase Children's Home in Lesotho, then please take a look at the page on the Thriving Abroad website. That's www.thrivingabroad.com. Thank you so much for listening and I wish you a very good week wherever you are in the world. Take care. Bye-bye for now.